At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is On Leadership with Atlanta Business Chronicle. I think to be a good leader, you have to be a good listener. You really have to meet people where they are. Everybody had something to teach me. You're doing this job, you got to have fun. It's about moving the mission forward. On this podcast, you'll hear from top Atlanta business leaders about industry, innovation, and lessons on achieving success. I'm your host, Crystal Edmondson. Today on Leadership... How do we create a system in society where everyone gets what they morally deserve and everyone is supported? That's the North Star for Frank Fernandez, president and CEO of the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. The group recently received $7.5 million from the Wells Fargo Foundation, launching a five-year initiative to expand home ownership among people of color. We begin our conversation with some of the details of that plan. With this the initiative is focused on is helping to preserve and or build over 6,000 homes over the next four years for you know, prospective home buyers of color. That is what it's focused on. And, that, and, that, and there's lots of different component pieces to that. And we also know that that by itself is not going to be the long-term solve. We have to have policy, changes in policy and in our system to address these bigger, uh, bigger ticket issues like institutional investors coming in and, and, and buying a bunch of stuff up, which is how we do that. And yeah, how do you me, like disincentivize that? Because they're looking at it from an economic standpoint. And that's right. there are other factors that are saying, hey, but this may not be good for the folks that are living here. Yeah. And I think that that's a that's a, a policy question and debate that is really starting to happen more and more to think through how you, to your point, create disincentives or make it easier for institution investors going to buy single family, but also incentives that enable more and more local folks who are actually living there to buy these homes. Make the connection, if you will, between home ownership and the wealth gap that we see in Atlanta, because I think some people may not connect the dots on that. And they may say, well, home ownership is one thing. And then the wealth gap is something different. But but there is some connectivity there. Oh, yeah. With, without a doubt, for most Americans, especially most Americans of color, your home represents the vast bulk of your net worth. For, for black Atlantans, they are less than half as likely to own their home than white Atlantans, but twice as likely to have zero net worth as white Atlantans, right? And so those two things to me speak to some of the disparities that we have. And so when you think about home ownership, it is both about create affordability and wealth building, right? And so one of the things, for example, for this effort is that it is creating affordable home ownership opportunities for folks right, who, can, right. who can pay their mortgage and all that kind of stuff to look at people who can afford a mortgage at $300,000 or three, you know, and they have access issues. Now the kind of support they need is going to be different and not as heavy as say someone who makes $35,000 right. uh, a year versus say $150,000 a year. But in today's market, 
and because of the way our systems worked historically, there are some tweaks we need to do. So a big part of this is about how we equip the, the prospective homeowners with everything they need, how we create a system that supports and grows builders, developers, uh, and, and nonprofits that are led by folks of color, and then how we also then improve representation in the, re the residential real estate system so that people are able to access opportunities that are already there. Because that's a big part of this effort is how do we connect, you know, black, prospective black homeowners, Hispanic homeowners with those things that are out there they just don't know about because the folks on the other side don't know how to market or they don't have realtors or brokers who know who, who they work with, who cater to black and brown um, home buyers. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do is how we connect those dots. I want to step back for a second. For those who do not know what the Community Foundation does, give us the elevator pitch. So the Community Foundation has been around for 71 years now. Uh, we are this community's foundation. So we, uh, we have over 1,000 donors who do philanthropy with and through us. Uh, and we've been doing that uh, for those 70 plus years. And we are focused uh, as an institution, as a civic institution in this community, on what can we do to help to two big things. One is tackle, support, and address our region's biggest challenges and partner with our donors in, in addressing those challenges as well as other challenges that they, they see as priorities and interests that are, are needing support in our community. Yeah. So you're connecting donors, your donors, with the needs in the community and where they want to maybe focus their their philanthropy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, yes. Are there lessons learned from your experience? You succeeded um, Alicia Phillip, a longtime leader in the city. Can you talk about the pros and cons of sort of following after someone um, who who has been a strong leader, had been a strong leader at, at the Community Foundation or any organization? Yeah, no, I think so. I started in August of 2020, so a few months into the pandemic. Um, Alicia had been here 42 years. Yeah. And, and and so it's hard to be honest to disassociate kind of like all the pivots we had to do from the pandemic versus coming in at, after someone who'd been there 40 plus years. What I'll say at a high level is really important to to me and to the organization is, and, and someone said this phrase to me recently, I really liked it because it captured well the, what what we've been trying to do is building for the future with respect for the past. Right. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so I think that captures well what we're trying to do in terms of um, I got brought in to, to help figure out what the next chapter in the foundation story looks like. And it, I didn't realize I was going to be doing it when I started the interview process that I was going to be during a, you know, a pandemic. But um, the, the, the biggest challenge, I think, for me is just is change management, is that we are all experiencing so much change right now in terms of, okay, well, I have the just the organizational stuff in terms of the board wants us to focus on something different, so we're, we're having to change what we focus on, We, but we're also in the middle of a pandemic that is changing our lives professionally, personally, just how we do work, how we engage with work. Uh, and so that's a lot of change for all of us, all yeah. at once. And so it's, you know, and that is definitely wears on people, I will say. How have and you so, managed that? I mean, because you're right. We all have been dealing with a lot of change across the board. How are you dealing with that as a leader, as a person? And are there things that you learned about yourself that you said, whoa, okay, this is this is something I didn't realize, or this is something I'm good at? 
Give us some insight. You know, I think part of it is sometimes you need to take a step back uh, in all honesty, because like one of the things I try to do from a leadership perspective, someone gave me the advice that you don't want to be working in the organization, you want to be working on the organization. And so how do I, you know, like toggle back and forth between strategy and culture? And because mm. a lot of the time it's easy to default to strategy because that's like more empirical. It's, you know, you don't have to deal with all these emotions that you may be going right. through, others may be feeling like, but you're not going to get very far if you don't got the folks, you know, your folks on your team and the community behind you and you address all these other things that are going on. And so some of it, to be honest, is just taking a step back and like, you got to breathe. You got to check in on people, see how they're doing. Sometimes they're doing fine. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes you messed up. So you're like, oops, I got to, I got to own that. And what can I do differently as we go forward? Um, and, and so, you know, that to me has been part of how we've kind of figured it out. Um, and it, it isn't easy. I'll, I'll definitely say that it's not easy. And I'm not going to pretend like I have, here's the playbook and this is how you do it. And you won't have any problems because I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, it has not been easy. Um, as I think about the work that, that you've, you're doing in the community, you've done in community for, for decades. Um, I was thinking about how you got to where you are. Um, I was looking back at your bio and I was kind of like, okay, your undergraduate degree is in philosophy. Um, and so I was like, there's not really a direct line between an undergraduate degree in, in uh, philosophy and the work that you're doing today. Can you talk a little bit about when you became interested in equity and improving communities and, and what got you to where you are today? So uh, I often get the question, like, what do you do with your degree in philosophy? Um, so what, what I will say, what I, at least what I tell everyone, <clears throat> is that philosophy teaches you the very important skill of how to think critically. Right? So that's the big thing, one of the big things I think philosophy teaches you. And for me, when I, when I studied philosophy, I focus on uh, morality and, and political and social philosophy. So it was really about how do you build a just society? So it was very obviously philosophical, a little more academic, but uh, it was focused on the same issues that I'm focused on today, um, but much more theoretical. And so part of it for me is how, how do we bring that to life? How do we create a, a, a system in a society where everyone gets what they morally deserve and everyone is supported, right? And what does that really mean? And how do you unpack that? And, and so me there's a very very clear kind of through line to that so for me from my perspective you know I, after i, I graduate undergrad graduate from college I, I did investment banking in new york for a while and then went back to grad school then from grad school on really have been focused for the last 20 plus years on this issue of equity right and how you define it and have very you know have a very philosophical definition of it uh because it is something that gets used a lot of different ways and, and they all have some credence to it, but philosophically, it really is about how, you know, this is for me, how do we help, how do we help ensure that everyone has a fair shot at a, at a decent and good life? That, I've had to boil it down. That's really what it boils down to for me. And That's your definition all, as you think about what the definition is? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, and that's what I'm, that's, that's my professional interest and focus and, and what guides me, my North Star, as I move forward in the work I do here and I've done previously. Now I understand, okay, philosophy and the tie to the work that you do today. 
But I want to follow up on that because your interest in sort of the moral through line in equity sounds like it dates back prior to going to college. Where, does, where do you think that interest comes from? I think it comes from a few different places. So some of it definitely comes from my faith background. Uh, I grew up Catholic and I went to an all-boy Catholic high school. And uh, you know, one of the things they ingrained in us, which I actually have on my computer, the sticker from Micah 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, what does God require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And that, that really is a resonant and, and kind of foundational principle for me. Um, and then also my, my own lived experience uh, in terms of I've had a lot of different things happen to me in my life. And uh, you know, my family, we lost our home. So we, we weren't able to preserve it. We lost in the, our home. We, we had life events that happened. We lost everything. And that created a downward spiral that uh, really had a, a huge impact on our family. So I, I know firsthand the kinds of things when, when what happens to, to families when they, they're subjected to severe trauma, and then how folks are able to recover from that or not, or how circumscribed their life choices become or not. So for me, being able to think through how do we create a system that when that stuff happens, people are, are taken care of is really important. How did it turn out for your family, if I can ask? Well, you know, my, they lost their home, and we had lots of different challenges. I won't for you with right now, um, but financially, we're never fully able to really recover. In all honesty, uh, and and that's for my parents, and that's a that's a tough thing. Now, if there had been some things in place that could have helped, that maybe they, they would have had a different outcome, but they weren't. So there wasn't. Wow. I can see where that also. There are a lot of things that 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 motivate the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Um. Does that keep you fueled um, to to move the needle on some things because you know what it what it can be like? No, I definitely think it helps in terms of for me what drives me is having it's it's, it's both the head and the heart, right? So you you understand it at a very visceral level, right? I understand it at a very visceral level, and I for me it's also important at a head philosophical level, like this is the right thing to do, so we should do it. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the, the present and future. I'm wondering what conversations maybe you're having with, with other leaders in our region about the area's growth and, and how to manage it and make sure that there is equity for everybody involved. This is where this, this notion, an important notion of regionalism really comes into play. Um, I had a lot of conversations with my colleagues at the Metro Atlanta Chamber, Katie Kirkpatrick, uh, Milton Little United Way, and Anna Roach now at ARC about this very thing, is how we, our region is expected to grow pretty significantly over the next generation. And what shape that takes and how we actively try to help influence that will be fun, fun, fundamental and foundational to, are we gonna become a more equitable place or less? Is there, a, is there a sense of urgency, like we need to do this now, or are there, do we have a little time, I guess, in, in Atlanta? I think it <clears throat> depends on the issue. So two things I know we don't have much time on. Housing, because it it's been getting more expensive, so we have to move 
Um, and the other one that's just top of mind for me is just healthcare access. Just because we've had these two hospital closures, it's having real impacts. Um, uh, Anna Roach shared with me the stat that I've been telling her, I tell everyone because she shared it with me, is like EMT response times. Just something as basic as like, you call 911, there's a health emergency. How long does it take the EMTs to get to you? And like in North Fulton, the, the average time is about five minutes. In South Fulton, before the closure of the two AMC hospitals, it was 35 minutes. 35 minutes compared yeah. to five minutes? Yeah. That's problematic. And that's just one one example, right? There's lots of other things that we have to we have to fix that. So in an ideal world, what does Atlanta in its best form? What does the, the ideal Atlanta look like from wh where you sit, let's say a year from now? I would want us to, you know, to start addressing this. The, we're, we're in a city of contradiction in so many ways, right? We're a city of you know, too busy to hate, the cradle of the civil rights movement, the black Mecca, all these great things. And we also have the highest income inequality and lowest social mobility rates. That That is, you know, that dichotomy needs to, we need to, one, say it, be more forthright about it, number one. And then number two, think about, all right, what are we doing to address that and be able to more fully live up to this aspiration we have for our city? Because in many ways, we, we are still the capital of the New South. And what does that mean? Well, Frank, I have no doubt that you will continue to build bridges, but also be a truth teller in that space. Um, it's challenging work that you do, but but you are forging ahead. Frank Fernandez, president and CEO of the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. No, thank you, Chris, for having me. I appreciate it. Back to the Community Foundation's Home Ownership Initiative. It's a $220 million program, and so far it's received commitments for $146 million. Partners include public and private organizations. The remaining $74 million is expected to come as it produces results on the initial funding. Well, that's it for this edition of On Leadership with Atlanta Business Chronicle. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at onleadership at bizjournals.com. Listen to more episodes and catch up on local business news and events on our website, atlantabusinesschronicle.com. I'm Crystal Edmondson. Thanks for listening to On Leadership with Atlanta Business Chronicle. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE.